Well, if you would take your Bibles once again and turn to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3 is where we'll be here this morning and where we see Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. Mark chapter 3. As we get into the message today, we see Jesus back in Capernaum healing in the synagogue. And as always, his faithful posse of investigators were close at hand, uh, critically challenging Jesus' every action. And so we're going to see in just a moment how the story unfolds. But if you would, listen as I read verses 1 through 6. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So the idea here is a man with a withered, shriveled hand. He's been handicapped for some time, maybe from birth. And he's just standing there, and Jesus notices him. And uh, so here's this posse of investigators known as the Pharisees who are just kind of watching his every little move just to see whether or not he might do something wrong. And so verse 4, or verse 3, He told the man with a shriveled hand, Stand before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? or to save life, or to kill. But they were silent, referring to the Pharisees, for once they didn't say anything. Uh, After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians, against whom how they might kill him. Lord Jesus, we ask God that you meet with us this day, teach us those things from the text you'd have for us to learn, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we get started, I want to make just a few observations, and I think these observations apply to almost every story we've read about in the life of Jesus thus far. And the three observations are these amongst many, but at least these three. Number one, there are always people with needs, right? It seemed like everywhere he went, there are people with needs, and I think if we're to be Honest with ourselves today, everywhere we go, there are people with needs. So this is nothing new. This is just the idea that everywhere he went, there were people who had a need, and there were uh, those who were trying to get close to him. Number two observation, there are always critical people nearby, right? It seems like in every situation of life, there are those who are critical about what they are seeing and observing. So there are those with needs, and Jesus is, is attending to them, And then, of course, there are critical people nearby. And then number three, there are always lessons to learn from the circumstances, right? Always lessons to learn. Um, And you can see this as in, in many synagogues, Jesus happens upon a man with a withered hand. There's one with the need. And you and I know that's no chance uh, encounter, but to the Pharisees, those who were critical, it was yet another opportunity to get Jesus doing something wrong. And here's an opportunity to learn a lesson from what he is about to do. And, uh, you know, it's so true that in every circumstance of life, these three observations are usually present. Uh, Especially as you look around it, even in Christian organizations around us. We're real critical about how this church is doing something, but we fail to forget that, wow, they're at least doing something. We're not. Or they're doing it this way, and we're doing it this way, but somehow our way, even though it hasn't been too effective, is better than their way of doing something. There's always the needs. There's always those that are critical about how something is going to be addressed, but 
really, I think what we need to look for is, what is the lesson that God wants to learn in that? What is it that God wants to teach us through the, less, or through the, the needs that are around us and, and the critical speed people that are oftentimes there? And you know, uh, I was just reading as I was preparing for my message last week, in John chapter 11, these three things were there. In fact, keep your finger in Mark just for a moment. I'm just going to go over and have you turn over to Mark chapter, or John chapter 11 just for a moment. And uh, in John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44, and if you remember the story here, this is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. And Jesus told her, Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out bound hand and foot with the linen strips and with a face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Now there was a circumstance that took place before all that. He was sick. And, and, and Mary and Martha, you know, the ones that were always there nearby Jesus. In fact, uh, it was the one that, you know, Mary uh, uh, wet, wet the, the feet of Jesus and then reached down with their hair and dried his feet. You know, uh, this same person, you know, as soon as there's a problem, what was the immediate response? Call for Jesus because he can fix this. So there's the problem. There's the one in need. And then there's the critical people. Well, Jesus, he could, you know, if he's so great and he can do all these miracles, why didn't he come and take care of it? There's the critical people. And, but the lesson to learn is that, wait, wait a minute, this sickness is not unto death. It did this that God, the Son of God might be glorified. But it's interesting to notice in the story of, of Lazarus is that Mary wanted him to come right away. But guess what Jesus didn't do? He didn't come right away. If you read the first few verses of John chapter 11, you, you find out not only did Jesus not come when Lazarus was sick, he stayed there where he was for two full days. So, well, that's crazy, right? Because he doesn't always do things the way we want him to do it. Not only did he just stay there for a couple days, after the couple days were up, he went the opposite direction back into Judea. And his disciples said, well, wait a minute, Jesus, you know that you're not probably welcome there. They wanted to stone you there. So what's he do? Goes back the opposite way. He still didn't go to what was the obvious need because Jesus doesn't always respond the way we want him to respond in the timing that we want him to respond in, right? But he does what he does so that the lesson might be learned. And the lesson is this, that God gets the glory in everything. And that's what he's doing here in, in our uh, story in, in Mark chapter uh, 3 here. So he's in there, and you see what happens here as the story unfolds. You have the one in need, you have those who are critical, and the opportunity to learn a lesson. So the Pharisees watched him to see if he would heal the man in verse 2. Uh, it says, in order to accuse him, they are watching him closely to see whether or not he would heal the man. They watched him closely. Uh, you know, though they did not see a man in need. You notice that? They didn't really see the man in need. They saw Jesus, who may potentially be doing something sinful on the Sabbath. And so they were so intent on looking and finding a fault in Jesus that the man in need 
was just standing there. I wonder how many times in our lives we're critical of a situation, but we fail to see the need in it because we're too busy over here looking at what we think is a bigger issue. I think sometimes we need to step back and look at the whole scenario. And the Pharisees just couldn't do it. They were waiting for Jesus to really mess up. You know, and under the Mosaic law, the, uh, working on the Sabbath was a capital offense. And you say, well, is that really working? Uh, I think they were working harder with their, you know, observing their to-do list and what not to-do list that they failed to see what was actually happening. So in Exodus chapter 31, let me read just a couple of verses as to what they were referring to. Exodus 31, beginning with verse 14. It says, Observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. See, in their minds, in the Pharisees' minds, Jesus was profaning the Sabbath. He was doing something very wrong. So he says, if anyone does work on it, that person must be cut off from his people. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day, there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. And anyone who does work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. So they were very adamant that Jesus was doing work on the Sabbath, and therefore, well, that's just not good for him. Jesus showed boldness to his critics, though. And I see a couple of things that take place. In his boldness to confront their hypocrisy, Jesus calls for the man with the withered hand to stand up. In fact, we see that right away in verse 3. He says, He told the man with the shriveled hand, Stand before us. Now, this particular situation is a little bit different from the other stories that we see Jesus where he's doing miracles. In some of the stories, you see the people confronting Jesus and finding him because they had a great need that they wanted Jesus to take care of. This is not necessarily a chance encounter, one that God knew would take place for sure, but Jesus happens to walk into the synagogue and the man is just standing there. It wasn't like the man with the withered hand was out looking for him. Jesus found him. And so in this moment of boldness against the Pharisees, stand and come forth. And the man comes forth. Now, think about this just for a moment. Just kind of put your thinking caps on and just kind of think about this just for a moment. What must it have been like to be handicapped in that day and age? I mean, think about it. We live in such an advanced day that we have every medical device in need within arm's reach, so to speak. Can you imagine being crippled, not able to walk, maybe not even to have use of your arms and your limbs, but not having an electric wheelchair? Can you imagine? Can you imagine just for a moment, no special ramps descending from anybody's houses? Can you imagine just for a moment, no modern x-rays or MRI devices? to really see what the issues are? Can you imagine no prosthetics with electronic hinges and shock absorbers and so on to be crippled, to be handicapped in that day was probably very difficult. If you couldn't work with your hands, 
if you couldn't use your feet to get to and from work, what was your only alternative? Beg. But here's a man that Jesus sees with a need. And immediately, because Jesus is full of love and compassion, he seeks to do something about it. Can you consider just for a moment, not only life as a handicapped person in this particular day, but consider the emotions of the, at the moment standing before all those people. Now for a moment, you're that handicapped person with a withered hand who's, that's useless, unusable. And Jesus is telling you to step forward on one side. And on the other side are all the Pharisees who are about to condemn him. What should I do? He wants, the, he wants healing, right? So he's going to take that step. But in taking the step, he's in the radar of these guys here watching him. Everyone is tense except Jesus. He's bold. He has no fear. What should I do? Might be going through his mind at the moment. But this is where Jesus once again speaks forth in boldness. Verse 4. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they were silent for once. I, I, I added those words. Um, obviously it would be wrong to kill or to do evil on the Sabbath. We know that. But then it was wrong to do that on any given day. That was the exact point. It's wrong to do that any day. However, in similar fashion, what about saving life? Let's hypothetically suppose that it's the Sabbath, but your neighbor's house is burning to the ground. What do you do? It's the Sabbath, but... Your neighbor's having a stroke or a heart attack. Do you call the ambulance? I mean, that would cause those guys to have to work. Or do you just let them die? Suppose just for a moment that your neighbor's baby fell into the pond. And they're drowning. I'm sorry, I can't help. It's a Sabbath. I mean, you certainly you understand. I can't, I can't do these work and exert energy. It's a Sabbath day. I, I can't be involved with those things. And you notice in Matthew, just for a moment, chapter 12. Let me just read the verse for you. Matthew chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I mean, how dare you eat? I mean, pick the grain to eat. I mean, if you're hungry, too bad. You should have laid it out the day before. The problem is not with the Sabbath. But the problem is with the Lord of the Sabbath. And these Pharisees just couldn't understand what was taking place. But the Pharisees stood silent. They would neither contradict nor condone Jesus' point. Phillips noted that it was silence of rejection and disbelief. They rejected him as a savior and they disbelieved everything he said. So he then in anger and grief over the Pharisees told the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hands. Consider just for a moment Jesus' anger 
The Pharisees may have been very well willing to let the house burn. The Pharisees may have very well been okay with letting their neighbor die of a heart attack. The Pharisees may have very well been okay to let the child drown rather than break a rabbinical rule. Why? Because they are more interested and more concerned about keeping the rules and regulations than they were with having a relationship with Jesus Christ. I came across this article. It says, Religious Rules. Christian faith involves rules that are meant to be governed by love. That makes love the highest rule, but since it also means Christians toward personal sacrifice, discipline, and responsibility, and scarce resources in, are, are scarce resources in today's world. And he says, how do I know whether it's a rule or a regulation? He gives us four points to consider. Number one, do the rules serve God's purposes? In my walk with Jesus Christ, I have guidelines that I instill purposefully so that I might stay on the right path, right? We all do that. But I have to ask myself, do the rules, do the regulations, do the guidelines that I implement help me uh, fulfill God's purposes? Number two, do the rules, the regulations, the guidelines that I follow, do they help me reveal God's character, His mercy, His justice, and His compassion in my life? If the rules and the regulations and the guidelines that I instill in my walk with God don't help me do that, it might be more out of duty than desire. Number three, does the rule help people get into God's family or keep people out? That's an important one. Do I make it so difficult for people to come into God's family because of what I say they must do and be? before they even come to the place of understanding who Jesus Christ is and what he's done? If so, it's a rule. A religious rule rather than part of a relationship. And number four, does the rule have strong biblical roots? Good rules pass all four of these tests. Do they have good biblical roots? See, we're good at putting rules and regulations in our life, aren't we? I think we all do it. We don't mean to. We don't intend to, but we do it. And we need to make sure that at first and foremost, there's a relationship with Jesus Christ first. And that came from the Life Application Bible Commentary on Mark. The Pharisees could not make Jesus conform to their religion or their rules. And because of it, they were upset. And here's another thing that the scripture draws out here. Jesus knew the hardness of their hearts and he was grieved by it. Look at the verse there. Verse 4, it says at the very end, but they were silent. And after looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He was grieved at the hardness. They really didn't care about Jesus. They didn't really care about what he was doing. They were only concerned whether or not he was keeping the Sabbath according to the rabbinical rules. There was no grace. There was no mercy. There was no understanding or no empathy towards those that had the need. Just whether or not he was following the guidelines. So Jesus instantaneously heals the man with a withered hand. You've got to love this. 
Here's a man who's just in a synagogue, minding his own business, coming there to hear the lectures of the day, and Jesus walks in. And next thing you know, he's healed. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just immediately, he's healed. Because, because really, he was at the right place at the right time, and an encounter with Jesus changed everything. So what was the Pharisees' response? Well, we see this in verse 6. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Now this was just in their minds, it was just a matter of formality. It wasn't something they were necessarily maybe even angry about at the moment. This was formality. Remember back there in, in the book of Exodus? Anybody who profanes the Lord's day, they must be put to death. So now we're going to figure out how we're going to fulfill that Mosaic law, right? Just a formality. So we're going to go out with the Herodians. Uh, at, at this point, they probably couldn't sway public opinion. He was helping people. He was doing miracles. He was restoring sight, causing lame men to walk. He's not, they're not going to get the public opinion to side with them. So we're going to go back to the Herodians. And we're going to talk it up. And we're going to get them to side with us. And they began to plot how they might kill Jesus. Early into his ministry, they're already angry enough to fulfill what they feel they should do. So, when I look at this story, I'm thinking to myself, how does this apply to where you and I live? How do any of these stories apply? We've noticed that in every one of these stories, there are things that we can learn and apply to our lives. So what is, it, what is it that God wants us to learn in these stories? I think there are at least three things here. I think, first of all, the thing that jumped out to me was to guard yourself from having a critical spirit. It's so easy to have. I'm telling you, every time I get in my vehicle on a trip, not so much around town, but on a trip, cruise control. Somebody inevitably has got to get in front of you and slow down. I just want to shoot them. In Christian love, of course. I just want them to be done with me. Get out of my lane. I, I just want to be able to drive down the highway with my cruise and somebody actually know and understand the dictionary definition of yield. I think, I think in the modern culture, the definition has changed to hurry up, put the foot on the metal, and just get in front of the guy as fast as you can, then slow down. Merge means yield. It means come in behind, not get speed up, get in front of. They, I can get critical that fast. I know me. I'm very much, and before I crucify the Pharisees, I have to say I'm often like them. I can be critical. And I hate that. Because it's not Christ-like. But that was the thing that God jumped on me for as I was studying for this. Guard yourself from having a critical spirit. Number two, am I willing to extend the grace when needed? Well, no, I'm angry. You tick me off. Sounds fair enough, right? <laughs> I struggle with it. Anyone else? That's me. Extend grace. I don't want to. I'm just minding my own business. And in family situations, sometimes it's hard. Distant relatives, hard. They're critical of you, and you don't want to extend the grace. You mind your business, I'll mind mine, and just leave me alone. Sounds fair enough. 
except for it's not Christ-like. Another thing that the story brought up for me was number three. Develop a great relationship with God rather than rules and regulations. I need to be more concerned about what Jesus is trying to do in my life than about what someone else may or may not be doing. The Pharisees were constantly, in every one of these stories, self-serving. They're masters at knowing what someone could do and what they could not do. And rather than developing a love for God himself, they're worried about whether or not other people were spiritual enough. Whether or not they were following the rules and regs. I don't know about you, but the story speaks a lot. We can get caught up in the fact that just a simple story. Or we can say, wow, I need to guard myself so I don't become like the Pharisees. I need to extend grace. I need to develop a relationship with God rather than be bound by rules and regulations. What is it that God's trying to teach me through this? I don't know about you, but I know i got so far to go. Every day is a challenge, is it not? It's so easy to point out the flaws in others and at the same time overlook your own. Maybe this will challenge you too. Don't be looking at the negative of others. Look at what God's trying to teach you. Let's pray.